was thinking this week as we're getting ready to start a new series in the book of Colossians, and there's really just two big themes that we're going to discover in the book of Colossians. Paul is writing this letter, and he is making the case that Jesus is king. He's preeminent. He rules over everything. We're going to discover this stuff along the way. But there's a second thing that Paul is saying as equally in this that stood out to me as I just began to prepare for this this week. And competitor that I am, the analogy that came to mind was playing checkers. Super weird, right? Like I haven't played checkers in a long time, maybe with my kids a little bit, but really since I was a kid was the last time I played checkers. Do we have any checkers players in the house this morning? It's been a while, right? Like, I mean, maybe, I don't want to insult anybody. I don't think a lot of adults are getting together and having like checkers nights. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You can correct me later. But I remember as a kid, like, I just, I was a huge fan of sports and board games. And listen, if you haven't, if if you haven't hung out with me yet in a competitive setting, I just have to warn you in advance. There are two sides to me. There's the friendly, nice guy that's your buddy until we're competing in something. And then you are the enemy. And my goal is to vanquish you. That is it. Um, But I can remember playing checkers and like one of the most glorious moments in checkers is when you finally get one of your pieces all the way to the other side. Now, you guys may have been a lot more humble than me, but like when it got to the other side, it wasn't just like, there it is. It was like, king me. I mean, it was like dropping the hammer, right? And it was like almost... It was almost like insulting for the other person to have to, okay, and they get the other checker and they flip it over and they double it up, right? You got like the two checkers on top of each other. It's like, there's the king right there on the board. It was just this like glorious moment of victory. But I always thought like there was something interesting about it. Like why did the other person have to do something? Like I got there, I'm the king, but there was this thing that had to happen where it was like king me and they have to decide to acknowledge and recognize I made it. I'm the king. Now, that might be a really, really silly analogy to you guys, but I feel like that's what Paul is doing in the book of Colossians. He is laying out the case that Jesus is the one. Like, he is it. This guy put the stars in their places. He is the one that was involved at the moment of creation. We're going to see scriptures like, he created all things and in him all things are sustained. Things were created by him and for him. Like he is it. He is the one. And Paul is declaring it boldly and unapologetically. He is making much of Jesus in the book of Colossians. But I feel like this statement, Christ is king, it's both an exclamation point and it's a question mark. It's a question mark. Because Paul writes and he says in Colossians chapter 1, First in verse 15, he's laying out this case, some of the things I just said. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. He makes that case. And then he builds on it for several verses. And then we end up down in verse 27. And right in the middle of that verse, he says just really simply, listen, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Has anybody ever heard that verse before? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yeah. And I love that it's just a verse we can grab and use and recognize as awesome. But Paul puts it at the end of this incredible declaration of who God is. And he's saying, let's be in awe of Jesus. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the ruler. And then he says, you have an opportunity. 
you get to decide. Will you make him your king? Will you surrender? He's made it across the board. He's jumped all the checkers. He's landed on the other side. Will you crown him? That is the ultimate declaration and question of the book of Colossians. And what I love about this book that we're going to unpack, it's, it covers so many things. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Genesis during the course of this study. We're going to find ourselves in the book of Revelation. We're going to go from creation to redemption. We're going to, we're going to discover a tale of two cities in the midst of Colossians. This letter, believe it or not, wasn't just written to the church of Colossae. There was another church that was supposed to read this letter. And we're going to discover some interesting things about that. We're going to unpack what Paul has to say about the dangers of sin in our life. Equally, the dangers of just cold, empty religion. Just turning it into rituals and habits and things that we just do. Paul is even going to talk about the dangers of the philosophy of our day. The things that just in our culture that we live in that are just accepted as right and good and normal. That are actually counter to the gospel. He's going to talk about these things. And every single one of them is to build up this idea of how do I make Jesus king in my life? How do I make him king in my life? We're going to tackle practical things like how is Jesus king in your marriage as a parent, as a child? How is he king in a work environment as, as you being a boss or you being an employee? How is surrendering to Jesus, how does that affect your friendships, your relationships? These are all the territory that we're going to cover in the, these four chapters in the book of Colossians. The message that Paul wants to communicate is this. If you will crown Jesus king, you will see that he will work powerfully in your life. He will work personally in your life. And he will work practically in your life. That's what we're going to uncover as we go through this. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in chapter one a lot. And it's just going to talk about the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he does. When we get into chapter two, we're going to look at some very personal things that he wants to come and do in our lives that will affect us every day. And then finally, in chapters three and four, when we get there, there's just going to be some solid, practical nuts and bolts. What does it look like? to walk with Jesus in my day-to-day -day life with other people. That's where we're going in this series. Um, a couple of things I wanted to show you. I, I think I got this out of order, guys, and I apologize. We got a little map. We're going to give you a little bit of a sense of where this town Colossae is. So this is a current Google map. Um, and that little kind of pin drop, can you guys see that? That little pin drop that's there, that's where Colossae is. been talking with the Limas about Turkey. Colossae is in Turkey. And so here it is kind of on the western side, um, not too far from the coast there. Uh, a little bit further into this, this study, when we get into the book of Revelation, we're going to discover um, John, when he was on the island of Patmos, was right off the coast of Turkey there. And all, all of the different cities that Jesus wrote letters to in the book of Revelation were all kind of lined up in a row there in Turkey, kind of along the edge there. So just wanted you all to have that visual this is like a real town. Real people lived there. They were people that had discovered Jesus. Um, this letter was written about 30 years, roughly 30 years after Jesus had gone back to heaven and ascended to the Father. So I mean, these are early believers. And yet I was shocked as I read through it. I'm continually shocked to see how relevant this stuff is today. 
there are moments in this book where it sounds like Paul is writing to the American church. And so I'm excited to see what, what we'll gather out of that. So this is just kind of a little bit of an overview of where we're heading. This morning specifically, we're going to cover the first eight verses in Colossians. So if, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 1. And I'm just going to read together through the first eight verses. And then we'll just begin to pick a few things out of this. So here we go. Y'all ready? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not convinced by that response. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Are you engaged? I've got to warn you, if you haven't read a lot of Paul, you're in for some run-on sentences. You're in for some moments where it's like, wait a minute, hold on. Wait, I think he was saying something there that connects here and I, I missed it. So try to catch this as much as you can with me as we read through it. But then don't worry, we're going to take our time and kind of unpack this a little bit. So here we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul's writing this, but Timothy is somehow involved with him. Timothy was kind of one of these disciples that spent a lot of time with Paul. Paul poured into his life. He became a young pastor. And so they're kind of working together on this letter. And this letter, verse 2, is to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel which has come to you as it is also in all the world, and it is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew. Can you guys say heard and knew? Awesome. The grace of God in truth. As you learned also from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Eight verses, huge mouthful. Paul's introducing this letter. He's introducing himself in Timothy, and he's encouraging. He's encouraging this body of believers. He's, he's not only qualifying them as saints, reminding them of their place in Jesus, but he calls them faithful brethren. These are people who were faithful, man. They were pursuing the Lord. They were growing. And so he's encouraging and building that up. And even as he gets later into some warnings, He's really starting at just, you guys have this solid foundation. Man, you're in, you're a part of God's family and you're following him. Great job. And then he's letting them know, man, I, I thank God for you. I pray for you regularly all the time. Me and Timothy together are praying for you all the time. This bro Epaphras, man, he is working. He's battling on your behalf. And all of this stuff that he's saying here in verse eight, he's, he's emphasizing the power and the importance of the gospel message. And he uses this phrase, um, grace in truth. When you heard and knew grace in truth, all these things begin to come out of that. And so we're going to look at three basic things together this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the importance of hearing and receiving grace in truth. Secondly, we're going to talk about the substance of that. What is it? What is grace and truth? What is he talking about? And then third, we're going to look at the results 
of what happens when grace and truth are at work in our lives. So here we go, the importance of grace and truth. A couple things I want you to see that we already talked about. Number one, found in verse five, he says, listen, all of this stuff is because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Listen, I don't know about you guys. Heaven often in my life seems so distant. Eternity seems so far away. And what feels so, so real and so relevant is like right now today, this moment. And Jesus loves us and he cares about us in this moment. But we've got to remember something. The grace of God secures our future. The importance of grace and truth has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. It has eternal hope. Maybe I'm the only one, I'm not sure, but guys, there are times in my life where things feel hopeless. I hope that's not real to you this morning. Hopefully that's in a distant past for you, but all too often for me, there's moments where I wake up and I just feel stuck. I feel like things aren't changing. I feel like I don't see a way out. There's a situation in my life where it's like, God, is this, is this not over yet? Are we still here? And it feels tough. And Paul wants to write and encourage and say, listen, God's grace, the truth of God's grace that is available for you, it brings hope. And if we have hope in eternity, then we have hope in this moment. The God who has secured my future is with me in this present moment. Grace and truth, it's important. In fact, it's so important that we see some of these things Paul was talking about. He says, listen, I give thanks to God for you in, in verse 3. Praying always for you. Now, I, I would love to believe that I pray regularly and consistently and I stick with it and I'm faithful in it. The truth is the times I pray the most regularly and faithfully is when like I'm in trouble, right? Or, or maybe someone else that I know is in trouble. When, when, when something like, God, this has to change. You got to show up. You got to do something. The moment is urgent. All of a sudden I become a prayer warrior. When life is good and I'm cruising, man, it's way too easy for that to wane. And so Paul is saying, listen, I see you guys and I see your condition and I'm thankful for what God's doing, but I see your condition as urgent. So urgent that I'm praying all the time for you guys. You're on my heart big time. This issue of them understanding and receiving God's grace and understanding the full weight of that reality, it was an urgent issue to Paul. And so he says, listen, your hope is dependent upon it. Me and Timothy are praying for you all the time. And then he goes on to point out Epaphras in verse 7. He says, this guy's our dear fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So this issue wasn't just urgent enough for prayer. It required action. This guy, Epaphras, is there ministering to them continually, regularly. He's teaching them the truth. He's telling them what's up. He's being honest with them. He's encouraging them in their walk with the Lord. And then finally, What's not in these eight verses, but we find out later in the letter, Paul is writing this letter from prison. You know, I, I hear stories of these guys in the, in the scripture, and they just feel sometimes like these tales that are kind of a long way off. 
Anybody else feel that way? I mean, if I'm honest, there's moments where David and Goliath, that just doesn't feel real to me. Like there was really a giant, there was really this kid and threw a rock and took the sword and cut, like that happened. But like I can imagine a little bit like somebody being in prison here in our country and away from their family and especially if they're there for false reasons or unjust reasons and they're stuck there. And I'm trying to imagine what kind of things if I was in prison and separated from my kids, from my wife, from my friends, what would I be writing about? And I'm, I'm fearful that all too often it would be pretty selfish. Man, you wouldn't believe what happened in the mess hall today. You wouldn't believe this guy's been like staring at me and I feel like we're gonna get in a fight. I don't know what's going on. Like, I just feel like I'd be really wrapped up and concerned with just surviving in the moment that I'm in. But see, Paul's looking at his situation, his circumstances, and he's saying, I'm concerned for you. This prison is nothing compared to the potential of danger that you face out there in your walk with the Lord. And unless you are rooted and grounded in Christ, I'm concerned for you. And so I'm praying for you constantly. And this brother of ours, Epaphras, he's there working diligently so you can grab hold of and understand the power of God's grace in your life. And in fact, I'm so concerned that even as I'm sitting here in prison, I'm considering you and the position you're in. And I'm concerned for you. And so I'm writing this letter to strengthen, to encourage, to push you forward, to communicate some truth. This issue of understanding and receiving God's grace and truth, it's important. Number two, let's look at the substance of grace and truth. There's three big words that we're gonna see and, and they're probably somewhat familiar to us. In verses four and five, he's talking about what's transpired in their lives since the first time they heard about God's grace, since the first time that they received the gospel. And he points out three important things. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So that's one, faith in Christ Jesus uh, grew in their hearts, grew in their lives as a result of hearing this message. Secondly, love for all the saints was growing in them. And then thirdly, there's that hope that's in them because of what's laid up for them in heaven. All of this they grabbed hold of and has been growing in them since they heard before the word of truth of the gospel. So they heard this word of the gospel and three things happened. Faith, hope, and love. Those words familiar at all to us? We heard those anywhere else before? My mind immediately jumped this week, right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about the power of love. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, Paul, writing this same letter, says, And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. He says, listen, these three things, they're the key. And love is like the thing that's at the center of this. And I love this picture because, you know, faith, love, and hope, in some ways they sort of fit in time. When I think about hope, I'm thinking about the future. Something I can't put my hands on yet. Something that I'm, I'm believing, I'm trusting, I'm hoping might be there one day. Faith. Faith in a lot of ways is rooted in the past. I'm trusting in the finished work of Christ. I'm looking back to the cross and choosing to believe the reality of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Why is love the greatest? It's present right here, right now. First, because I'm receiving it. I'm receiving it. The substance of the grace of God is this. 
He loves me. He loves you. He loves the people in this world that we live in. God's love is present and active. And so the faith that we have in the finished work of the cross of what Jesus did there for us was to pave the way for us here and now in this moment today to receive and to understand the power of God's love. And so the substance of this grace and truth is wrapped up in these three words, faith, love, and hope. So I briefly want to talk about these. First of all, faith. There's a lot that could be said about the word faith. I want to encourage you guys in this. When we talk about faith, there's a couple of things that are just a huge hurdle. Number one, in the culture that we live in, faith is almost like a derogatory comment. People of faith, right? They're like the kooky ones that believe a fairy tale. It's not really based in reality. Are y'all willing to stand up for a second and and do something with me? I've got a silly example I wanna use. Can y'all just stand up with me for just a minute? All right, now, if, you're, if your legs are healthy enough for this, if they're not, you don't have to do this. But if your legs are healthy enough, I just want you to jump. You don't have to jump high, but on the count of three, we're all just gonna jump together. You ready? Anybody nervous about jumping? Okay, all right. Ron is ready to go. All right, here we go. One, two, three, jump. All right, perfect, great job, good job. All right, y'all can sit down. Now, was anybody terrified that you were about to fly off into outer space when you jumped off the earth? You weren't. Were some of you afraid you might fall after we jumped? Your knee might give out, right? Like, I'm getting older, man. The joints are feeling that stuff. I grunt and groan way too much in the morning. I don't feel like I'm old enough for that yet, but it's happening. It's absurd to think about being afraid of floating off into outer space. What is it that I'm putting my faith in that I don't even worry or think about that? Gravity. Gravity. It's there. It works. In fact, my faith in it in some ways is so strong, I don't even have to think about it. I just trust it. I mean, how bizarre would it be to watch somebody walking around like this? Get me to this post over here, right? Like going from like tree to tree. It'd be absurd. We'd laugh at them. Here's the point. Faith is not about how much faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. The thing you're putting your faith in, that's what gives it validity or insanity. I can have faith in Santa Claus and let's see how that works out. Are are there, how many little kids are in the room? I don't want to be like ruining Christmas here, right? Or maybe a more current thing. I can have faith in the political system and let's see how encouraged I am that that's going to work out, right? Okay, I, what do I put my faith in? That's the real question. That's the real question. And so instead of worrying so much about, do I have enough or have I mustered up enough or is my faith based on anything? What is my faith in? And the message of of the scripture is that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no more sure place to put our faith. The object of our faith is the one who made and sustains the earth and the one who loves us enough that he came here himself to die on the cross for us. So that if we put our faith in him, we can experience the love of God now and forever. That's faith, love, and hope working together. That's it. Now, as we receive God's love in our lives, 
that should begin pouring out of us towards others. And one of the things Paul will unpack in, in, this, in this book as we go along is not only issues that come along that tear down or diminish or attack our faith in Jesus, things that, that the world wants to add to Jesus when he is sufficient by himself, or even philosophies of the world that pull away or, or detract from who he really is, weaken who he really is. But he also talks about love in this book and the importance of learning to love one another more and more. And two themes that we'll see is, is real love is going to be self-sacrificing and it's also going to be uncompromising. It's going to be a hard thing when we get to that, but real love is self-sacrificing and it's uncompromising. And then finally, hope. We've talked about this already. But his message in the book of Colossians is this. When it gets bleak in our own lives and in the world around us. Listen, there's a lot of people right now that are terrified in our country and around the world. It looks bleak. And yet the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is we have a hope that is sure and when things look their scariest, don't you believe it for a minute because that doesn't have the final say. This moment in history is not the final say. Jesus has the final say. So how do we grab a hold of this? I mean, it sounds great to be full of faith in Jesus, to be experiencing God's love and giving that away. Man, to live a life that's full of hope. I mean, these are like core Christian ideals that we crave for and long for. And maybe there's even a lot of moments in our life where we feel like we have them. How do we really grab a hold of that? I want to really hone in kind of the rest of our time this morning on Colossians 1 verse 6. I want to just unpack a few words that are in this verse. And so we're going to pick it up just right there towards the end in verse 6 where he says, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Since you heard and knew. First of all, that word heard, it's not just like it's an audible sound that kind of came in and my ears sort of picked up and acknowledged there was a sound and it went out the other ear and, oh, I wonder what that was. This is hearing with attention. This is like I'm sitting here, I'm hearing it, I'm receiving and understanding what is said. That's what that word heard means. So it's really more like a like the thought bubble, you know, or like the light bulb, boop, goes off. I got it. It landed. That's what that word means. So since I heard it, that second word there, knew, that word doesn't just mean knowledge. It means to know fully or to be acquainted with. There's a, there's a Greek word, gnosis, that covers the idea of knowing. This word has an additional few letters at the front of it that add to it a level of experience. So it's not just that I've heard someone talk about God's grace and I understand the concept that God has grace available to me. It means I've actually experienced it in my life. I have working knowledge with this word grace. Working knowledge. I can be aware that I've got a car sitting out in the parking lot. I might even be the owner. The key might be in my pocket. But I have full knowledge of that vehicle when I actually get in it, put the key in the ignition, and I start driving it. Okay, now I'm experiencing this car. Now I'm in full possession. I get it. I understand how it works, how it operates. I've got a feel for it. That's the idea. You guys got the picture there? 
And so Paul's saying, here's how you grab hold of this issue of grace. You hear it, and then you get your hands on it. You invite what Jesus is talking about into your life. You experience it firsthand. And so what is this grace and truth? How do I get my hands on it? The word grace, I'm going to read this sentence to you. It's a favor done without expectation of return. It's the absolute free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. It's unearned and unmerited favor. It is God working towards us on our behalf for our benefit, looking for nothing in return. It is his grace that saves us and it's his grace that comes and operates in our lives that empowers us to live. That's what grace is. All right, then we've got the word truth. That word truth actually means reality. It means reality. We're gonna spend some time talking about this in the book of Colossians. But Christians have surrendered this word to the world. We've accepted that we're in the camp of faith and the philosophy of the day is in the world of reality and it couldn't be further from the truth. God has something to say about what's real, about how this world works. When we sense that something is wrong in this world, it's because something is broken that God never intended. When we recognize that something is right and is working the way it should be, it's because God purposed it that way. Grace in truth. Now, I have never that I can remember in all the years I've taught youth ministry and preached, I've never looked up the Greek word for like a little, a little small, tiny word like in. You know, like and and in and the. We just sort of assume we know what those mean, right? Like I do. When I hear the word in, I just assume that. Okay, the word in, you see the, you see the phrase there, grace of God in truth. Is that still up on the screen? It's not grace of God and truth. These aren't two separate concepts. The grace of God rooted in reality. That word in, there's two other comparable Greek words that are sort of like sister words with the word in. One of them means into, the other one means out of. This word in means to remain. The other ones imply motion, it changes. Sometimes I'm stepping into this thing. Sometimes I'm stepping out of this thing. But the word in means I've put up residence there. I'm remaining there. It speaks to stability and remaining in one place. In other words, it is essential that we keep God's grace connected to truth. We have to. If we don't keep God's grace connected to God's truth, we end up with something false. Guys, God's grace and mercy and love for us as people, as sinners who make mistakes, a fallen world, it is necessary. It's important. It's good news. Y'all know the gospel means good news? It's incredible news. We are at a massive danger in our society of redefining the word grace to mean something that was never intended. And it's dangerous. It's damaging for people who are in need. We need to understand and receive the reality of what God has to say about this world and then recognize his grace to come invade it with the love of God. 
that people are desperately in need of. Y'all catching that this morning? The substance of grace and truth is God's love that can be received into our, our hearts by understanding clearly our position. I want to give you a picture of this. We're going to skip ahead to the last verse. I want to give you a quick picture of this, and then I'm going to show you some results of knowing and hearing the grace and truth. So in Luke chapter 23, Jesus, our Savior, he's on the cross. He's gone through all the moments leading up to this moment. People are mocking him. He's there on the cross. And in this moment, there are a couple of thieves on either side of him. They've clearly blown it, right? They've at least stolen something, if not committed murder. I mean, they've, they've really done something wrong to deserve this type of punishment. And so there's Jesus on the cross. There's these thieves on either side of him. I think it's important to know in other gospels, it says both thieves were mocking him at certain points up there on the cross. And then all of a sudden, this, this takes place, starting in verse 38. An inscription was written over him in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanging next to Jesus said to him, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now think about this. The reality of the situation is Jesus on the cross like a criminal. The reality of the situation is not he's sitting on a throne. He's being killed. He's suffering. He's dying at the hands of others that are in charge. Everything outwardly would say, this guy is weak. He's defeated. He's dying. And most of the people present believed he deserved to be there. These criminals that are up there are believing that. Both of them at some point are mocking him. And then something dawns on one of these guys. And the reality that doesn't seem real to anybody else lands on this guy. And notice specifically what he acknowledges in this story. Number one, he recognizes his own condition. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't diminish what he's done to be on that cross. He says, I deserve to be here. He says to the criminal, bro, you deserve to be up here with me. There's only one person up here that's out of place. It's Jesus Christ. He did not change or diminish or weaken or talk out of what he'd done. He's not up there talking to Jesus going, you know, it, I mean, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, I, I kind of feel like this isn't fair. Do you think maybe you could help me kind of go with you up to wherever you're going? Like, you know, maybe he's not doing that. He's not talking himself out of his sin. He's acknowledging, I deserve this. He recognizes his position. And then somehow, in the midst of Jesus hanging there, he actually recognizes the reality of Jesus. 
and he sees Jesus and he acknowledges, look at this, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees Jesus as king even while he's on the cross. And what does the grace of God do? Does he say, don't bother me right now? This is pretty awful up here. Does he say, buddy, you had your chance? Good luck. While he himself is dying, he stops long enough to look at this guy next to him. And he says, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That is the grace of God in truth. Honestly recognizing and acknowledging my position and my place not diminishing it, not sugarcoating it, not calling it the grace of God to just justify living however I want to live, and yet recognizing I'm helpless. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless and I'm lost. But Jesus, I see you for who you are. Will you remember me in your kingdom? Jesus, I'll make you my king if you'll have me. And Jesus' declaration back to us is, I'll have you. You're mine. I love you. I love you. What are the results of this? The results of this, they're very simple. Colossians chapter five, chapter one, sorry, verses five and six. We're gonna wrap up with this. This gospel, which you heard before in the word of the truth, which has come to you, watch this. It has also in all the world. This message of truth is in all the world. And look what it's doing. It is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. What will hearing and receiving God's grace and truth do? It will be fruitful. It will be fruitful. But we cannot separate the two. I was thinking about fruit this week, even thinking about this, right? Like just a good bite of like a fresh piece of fruit. Like on a hot day, does anybody have like just a favorite piece of fruit that you really enjoy on like a really hot day? Something come to mind? Watermelon, right? Okay, watermelon comes to mind. Like a crisp cold apple comes to mind. Um, even some berries, like a handful like blueberries or strawberries. Oh, it just sounds good. I probably shouldn't be talking about this. We're getting close to lunchtime. See, that's like, that's like rule number one for a pastor. Don't mention food towards the end of the message when people are getting ready for lunch and I blew it. No, but like you can picture that, right? But see, here's the deal. When, when, um, when we separate these two things, something devastating happens to the fruit. If we take the grace of God and we remove truth from it, we might still have something that is really tasty. It's palatable. It tastes nice. It goes down sweet. You know the problem? It has no substance and it will not satisfy It'll leave us starving. It'll leave us hungry because there's nothing to it. There's no meat to it. When we are dishonest with ourselves and the world around us about God's grace, when we diminish it, when we remove the truth from it, it leaves us wanting. And the very thing that we might be doing, thinking I'm being compassionate, I'm being loving, we're keeping somebody from hearing the truth of the gospel that would save them, that would satisfy the very thing that they need. We cannot separate them. Well, what happens if we're just bold truth declares with zero grace and no love of God? You know what we end up with? A mealy apple, a thing that's totally unpalatable. I can't even choke it down. It just, it's nasty. It's rotten. I mean, 
Like, you know, that fruit that just gets down in the bin at the bottom and it's been there a little bit too long and other stuff was on top of it. And it's just like, ah, it's repulsive. Far too many of us, far too many believers who ourselves have received the grace of God in our lives are walking around as like the angry standard bearers of truth, offering an unpalatable mealy apple to a world that's desperate for something real, something of substance. Jesus is substance. He is health. He's life. He's everything that we need. And when we keep grace and truth wrapped up and tied together, we have something that both tastes good, right? The scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. He's good. His grace is good. And it's satisfying. He told the woman at the well, you'll keep coming back here thirsty day after day after day, but I can give you water that never runs dry, that satisfies. That's grace and truth. It's important. It has substance that we need and the results are powerful. It's fruit in our own lives. I don't know about you. I find myself regularly in need of just a dose of reality from God, a fresh taste of his grace and sometimes a reminder of some hard truth that I need to be honest about. God, this thing's got to change in me and your grace is available to do it. I can say, yes, you're the king. And that's got the answer to everything I need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are creator, savior, Lord, king. Jesus, the truth is we could go on and on and on with words that describe how wonderful and amazing and powerful and life-giving you are. And Jesus, I just pray it would never get old to us to stop and reflect on you. And Lord, this morning, I just personally for a moment want to say to you one more time, Jesus, be my king. Be my king. I recognize that you are the king. You're the ruler over all. But God, I just, I need to say to you this morning, would you be my king one more time? Lord, help me to surrender and to lay down to receive your grace and truth into my life, that I could hold on to my faith in you. God, that I could receive your love and give it away. And God, that I would have hope in my heart that would last. God, I pray that for myself. I pray that for my friends here this morning. God, I pray that we could be fruitful people, not because we're mustering it up ourselves, but God, because your grace is being poured into our lives. The reality of your love for us and it is flowing out to our family, to our friends, to a world in need. God, I pray that our lives could produce good fruit that's palatable and that has substance that will satisfy the hungry souls of those around us. Jesus, we're desperate for you. We love you. We thank you for your grace. It's in the powerful son of God's name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.